This morning we're continuing our look at the multicultural character of the kingdom of God. We're doing this six-week series focusing on what the gospel requires in bringing the hope of Jesus to people of every tongue, tribe, race, class, and nation. Let us pray together. Father, we ask for your blessing upon our time. We ask that you would send your spirit, your spirit would descend upon us that we might understand your story and the story of Scripture, and that our story would be found in your story. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We use stories to interpret events and situations in our lives. We use stories to understand things, and then we use those stories to project and to filter how we see things and how we see things and new things that come to us. So consider a couple stories and the role of the story. So there's a young boy. He is told since he is a young child that he, since he lives in America, America is the land of the free. America is the land of opportunity. A land, America is the land of equality. And so if he works hard, there is nothing that he cannot do. There is nothing that he cannot accomplish if he is willing to persevere and overcome and work hard. And over the course of his life, he largely tries to follow that storyline, and it substantially becomes true. So it's a storyline that he passes on to his children. Is there a different story? A story of a young black man who sees people in his community get shot by police officers who are unarmed. He's told by his community that when he's trying to excel in school, he's asked the question, why are you trying to act white? And he, all the men that he knows, there's a, you know, many of them have been incarcerated in his life, and he's told that there's not going to be anything different for him. Why should he think it should be any different? Think of the power of the story. Totally different one. Young girl. She's going through life. She's abused severely. She's wrestling with all kinds of the, the trauma and the heartache that comes with that. She's had some exposure to the church, went to church a little bit, but unfortunately the person that abused her was a part of the church. And so she's trying to wrestle and make sense of what has happened in her life. And she's wrestling with these ideas that, okay, if God is, if God is, God is all-powerful and he is all-loving, if God is all-powerful and all-loving, why, why is this happening to me? And someone, so someone suggests to her, well, either one of those things must not be true. Because if God were all-powerful and all-loving, then you wouldn't have had this suffering in your life. Either he's not all-powerful and he is all-loving, or he's all-loving and not all-powerful, because if he was loving, he wouldn't allow these things, wouldn't, wouldn't have allowed this to happen. And that story, interpret, each one of those stories interprets the way that they interact with the world. And it interprets how they process information. It interprets what they hear about the challenges that other people are dealing with. It interprets how they respond to them and how they respond to those challenges. Our media, whether that's from the political campaign, whether that's an agenda that the media has itself or other things that you hear, there are, you are bombarded with storylines about how to interpret the events of your life. Currently, right now, there are storylines that Hillary Clinton is trying to promote. There are storylines story that Donald Trump is trying to promote. There are storylines that Black Lives Matter is trying to promote. Storylines that, that Blue Lives Matter is trying to promote. And some of them, you know, various political propaganda and, and things that you, that you hear. 
And then you come in here to church on Sunday morning, and despite all the multicultural training you received at work and in your workplace, all of a sudden you come to church and you hear a pastor talking about the multicultural character of the kingdom of God. And your response to that is to say, you know what, I've heard this before. This is just like every other storyline that is being pushed upon me from our culture. Let me just be clear as we are journeying through this series, I am not particularly concerned about the storylines that our culture produces, but I am very concerned about the story of God. And I would urge you this morning, as we look at the story of God and in these coming weeks, is that when you listen to these stories, is that you may be hearing things and hearing things from me up here that sound like the echoes of various political movements, that sound like the echoes of maybe certain civil rights movements or Black Lives Matter or Blue Lives Matter or various propaganda or various things that you've heard, and you're saying, and I've said things, and you're like, you know what? I've heard that before. I know what this is about. Let me challenge you. And your response to many of those stories has been, you know, is just to reject that, to sniff it out from a mile away. As I mentioned, I'm not particularly concerned about those stories, and about, nor am I concerned about promoting those stories, but about promoting the story of God. And so what I encourage you to do this morning, and encourage you to do as we're work, working through this series, is not to reject any of those storylines, and not to reject what I'm saying because you hear echoes of various other stories that you hear in our culture, but rather that you would replace those stories with the story of God. Because each one of those stories that people have makes sense of their world in a particular way. It makes sense of struggles that they're going through, it makes sense of challenges that they're facing, and it seems to make sense based upon their experiences. But there is a bigger story that is going on in this world, and it is the story of what God is doing. And ultimately, it is the only story that brings about satisfaction, brings about redemption, and can bring healing to the hurts that people are feeling. So my goal this morning is very simple, is I want to overwhelm you with the story of God. We are, our text today is the Bible, literally the entire thing. We're going to be starting in Genesis and ending in Revelation in our time together this morning. And I'm only going to be addressing a very, very, very small fraction of passages of Scripture that deal with this aspect about the multicultural character of the kingdom of God. And what I want you to see here is that when you hear these other storylines, that you don't just immediately reject that, but you say, how is the story of God the answer to the longings of those other stories that I hear around me? So, as we jump into this here, the multicultural character of the kingdom of God, why are we focusing on this? Not because multiculturalism is a hot topic in our culture and things that people talk about. The reason why we're focusing on it is because it's, it's, it's central to the one story. In fact, it is foundational to the kingdom of God, its multicultural character. God includes, the story of scripture is God seeking to include people from every tongue, tribe, race, class, nation into his covenant promises. And the story of man is to exclude everybody who's not like me. The kingdom of God broadens. The kingdom of man narrows. But it is foundational to the kingdom of God, initially set up in creation itself. Genesis chapter 3, verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve. Why? Because she was the mother of all living things. The Genesis account asserts the universal fatherhood and motherhood of Adam and Eve, and that all the people of the earth are descendants of them. It occurs again in the second creation, namely after the flood with Noah. Everyone's destroyed. Noah and his family's left. Genesis chapter 10.32. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies in their nations, 
From these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. The emphasis being the universal connection of all nations through Noah. Why does this matter? Is because this principle, this truth, this assertion is unique. Consider the biblical truth in contrast to, for example, say, aspects of Chinese philosophy that would assert that the only thing that is eternal is the Chinese people. The only thing that is eternal is the Chinese people. Now, at lunch, you can discuss the geopolitical implications of that philosophical proposition. Seriously, think through that. Or, at the time of Moses was writing this in comparison to the other pagan nations, the story of other nations was this, is that how the nations came about was that there were warring gods, and out of these warring gods, various people groups were birthed, and those tribal deities were attached to a tribal group of people, and the goal of that deity and that goal of that, that people group was to have ethnic supremacy over the other people groups and to dominate the other people groups and oppress them. So in stark contrast, a foundational aspect of the kingdom of God is the universal connectivity of all the people on the earth drawn from God's creation under God and God being the ultimate Lord and leader of them all. Not only was it a creational principle, but it is embedded in the constitution of the people of God in the ancient Hebrews. The first five books of the Bible, which are the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, can be viewed as the constitution of the people of God. It laid out the laws for them as a, as a nation state, how they were to conduct themselves, their covenant relationship with God, what they were supposed to be doing, how they were supposed to be interacting. And what, is, what Scripture makes very clear in this constitutional series of books, the first five books, is that the one true God, the God of the Bible, is not the tribal God of the Hebrews but is indeed the God of all people and of all nations. And lest the Jews have any confusion about their ethnic superiority, he makes clear that they don't have any. He says this, It's not because you are more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you. He's saying, listen, if you think that you're ethnically better than anybody else, that, you're completely wrong. In fact, you've got nothing to offer. There's no reason about you that I choose you. The only reason why I chose you is because I decided to choose you. It's what God is asserting. He eliminates ethnic superiority. And then, as we're about to see, at the formative events of the nation of Israel, there is particular mention in inclusion of different races and nations as commanded by the Constitution, the first five books of Moses. So we begin, Genesis chapter 12, the promise God gives to Abraham, the foundational promise that the rest of Scripture is based upon. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, that is from Iraq to Palestine. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Families should be understood in the tribal sense. That is, everybody in your tribe is your family, your clan, your tribe. It's your people. Why were they chosen? Why was Abraham's line and family and his tribe blessed? 
Was it for their own sake? Was it for their ethnic superiority? Quite the opposite. So that all the other tribes of the globe would be blessed and would be blessed through them. Several other passages we can go to, but the next major event we'll skip to is the Exodus. Exodus, what's happened since the promise to Abraham, God, the people of Israel grow. As a famine comes in the land, the people of Israel move down to uh, Jacob and his sons move down to Egypt because there's food there. Joseph is in charge over Egypt. The, the Israelites live there. They grow into a great nation. They begin to get oppressed. God calls Moses to go lead his people out of Egypt in this event called the Exodus. The 12 plagues happen. Uh, I'm sorry, the plagues happen. The Passover, the firstborn son slain. They, people of, the people of God are now leaving Egypt. And they're going out of Egypt, eventually towards Mount Sinai as they are heading out. This event is referred to more than any other event in the Old Testament. Again and again and again and again, God says to the people of God says to his people, Remember, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God who delivered you from the hand of slavery under Pharaoh. I am the Lord your God who did this. Remember that I am the God who brought you out of the out of Exodus. This is how Exodus is described. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, that is, from Egypt out of Egypt. About 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. A mixed multitude joined them, people of other nations joined them in the Exodus. And at the formation of the people of God as the nation of Israel, there were other nations expressly drawn into that. Moses is noting, the writer of Genesis and Exodus, is noting that the formation of the, the, formation of the nation of Israel was not just ethnic Jews. Then, through the rest of the Mosaic Law, the books of Deuteronomy, which was given right before they were to attain the land and move into the Promised Land, there is express provision given to sojourners. Sojourners are foreigners who are residing in your territory. So, express provision for them. And not only provision, but special status. Contrary to the tribalism of everywhere else around them. Because all the other tribes operated on the basis of might makes right. And every tribe was looking for a minority that they could expre- exploit and oppress. But not the... Not for the people of God. They are in turn supposed to particularly give special provision for those who are most vulnerable. That the one true God, the God of Israel, is not like dictator gods. So, it declares that there's special provision that's supposed to be given to those who are most vulnerable in society. To widows, particularly with the loss of a husband who is probably the principal breadwinner, income earner. To the fatherless because of their easily being exploited. On the one hand, you could say, you know, this kind of makes sense, right? I mean, take care of your family, take care of your extended family. Someone's in hardship, take care of them, take care of the widow, take care of the fatherless. But it also includes strangers and sojourners. Those are the ones that are given express commands. Widows, fatherless, strangers and sojourners, foreigners to be included in. So, foreigners were given economic provisions, that there is economic opportunities. They were given legal protection. They were not to be treated differently than a native-born. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 10, God gives this command. He says, God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. 
And he commands them, love the sojourner, therefore, for you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. Why should you care about people who are different than you? Because you, who are wholly different than God, God has cared about you. When you were a stranger and foreigner to the promises of God, God extended himself, sacrificed himself, so that you would no longer be a stranger, but adopted into his home and forgiven through Jesus Christ. But despite this this and many, many, many others, specific provisions and specific commands, the people of God continually disobeyed. God is saying, include the nations. And the people of God said, let's include us. Include the nations. It's all about me. Back and forth. So, as this progressed, they wanted the blessings for themselves in excluding other nations. So why, for example, were the Israelites sent into exile? God says, you know, brings judgment upon the nation of Israel. They get scattered. The temple's destroyed. They get sent into exile. Why? Well, they were worshiping false gods. Yes, that's true. How did that express itself? Here's one such passage. If you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, foreigner who's dwelling in your midst, the fatherless or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in your own place in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Is that the people of God consistently excluded all the other nations and wanted the blessings for themselves, and in part, God brings judgment upon them because of it. Yet, God was determined to not let man's exclusion stop his inclusion of the nations. And God promised that he would send the true son of Israel who would fulfill the foundational purposes of God's kingdom. Many passages, one such of them, Isaiah 19. And consider this, this is remarkable. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians. And the Egyptians will know that the Lord in that day and will worship with sacrifice and offerings. And they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing. And they will return to the Lord, and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. Egypt, Assyria. Where does that have to go through? Israel. There will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. Hmm. In that day, Israel will be the third, not the first or second, but the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be be Egypt, my people. In Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. What is that? He's describing a time that when the the true son of Israel, Jesus Christ, would come, that there would be unity, that the nations, that the biggest enemies of Israel would join together in the worship of God, that there would be a highway for, for access so that the people could be mutual, free, excuse me, that there would be free mutual movement and the peoples would join together and worship together. And he calls them. He says, blessed, God says, blessed be Egypt, my people. Wait a second, I thought Moses went to, the, to Pharaoh and said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, let my people go. Suddenly, 
those people, the Egyptians, God is now calling to be my people. And Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. What's particularly amazing about that statement is that those three terms, my people, work of my hands, and my inheritance, were exclusively used of Israel. And God is saying, no, there's a day coming when all the nations and the enemies of God are going to be incorporated together in my people. People, Israelites get sent into exile. They are brought back from exile to rebuild the temple. Why? Haggai chapter 2. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasure of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The Jews, being very inclusive and focused on themselves, said God's going to make us rich from the other nations. Funny, the New Testament authors quote this passage as the basis for God's mission to the Gentiles. And where are they coming? They are gathering together in this place, which was the temple that was being rebuilt. Why? Because the temple was the symbol of of God's presence where all people could gather together to worship him, that the temple was supposed to be a house of prayer for all peoples. And so God's plan and his purpose for his people was that all nations, all peoples, all cultures, all tribes, all tongues, all classes would join together and know that he is God and that they would worship him and be included in his covenantal blessings. Accordingly then, any act of oppression or excluding, or ignoring, denies the very character of God and his covenant promises. Now, here's the way that the Bible-believing church in America has sought to deal with this truth in this passage. Is there he says, yes, God has been a God who is a missionary God. He is a God to the nations. So we are going to be very generous and encourage missions out there, and we better take really good care of ourselves in here. We'll fund people to do cross-cultural work out there to the ends of the earth, but we really need to focus on the people who are most like us in our own community, how it's been dealt with. But the multicultural character of the kingdom of God is foundational. Let me also say that it has never been popular. It is countercultural. And even though you hear in the news and the media this promotion for multi-ethnicity and 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 uh, diversity and diversity inclusion and multiculturalism, it is never popular. And it rarely works because we are so tribal and wanting to be with people who are like ourselves and so distrustful of people who are different than us. And in the nation of Israel, God sets them up to be expressly countercultural, to be expressly inclusive of the nations, even though the nations would exclude them. So, consider the Passover meal. Passover, which I think, if anyone identified, if there was one, if you had to say, what is one celebration of the people of God in the Old Testament? Everybody would say Passover. It was the highest and holiest celebration. Yet, God specifically includes foreigners in the meal and makes provisions for them. If a stranger shall, shall, this is in the establishment of the Passover ordinance to make it a permanent ordinance. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover of the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, then he may come near and be and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. 
that at this meal, there is provision made for strangers to participate. This would have been very countercultural for the Jews, particularly in Egypt, because the Jews were very familiar with the ethnic arrogance of the Egyptians and their refusal to eat a meal with anyone who wasn't Egyptian. Even Joseph, who was second in command of Egypt, his servants, Joseph's own personal servants, refused to eat with him because it was despicable for an Egyptian to eat with a Jew. And so while the people of Israel are in Egypt, God gives them command and says, there is going to be a celebration that is going to be the hallmark of the people of God. And in that celebration, you are not to be like the other nations that would exclude anyone that is different than themselves, but rather you are to include those who are different, who would want to participate and worship the Lord. But for the people of Israel, the inclusive character of God, of drawing the nations together, was always a problem for the people of God. It was always a problem. In fact, it was one of the reasons why there was a little bit of a revolt and people questioned Moses' leadership. Moses had this revolt. People didn't want to follow him as a leader. Why? Numbers 12. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. Why were they objecting? Because Moses the Jew married a black woman. A Cushite was an Ethiopian. And because he had married an Ethiopian, they were questioning his leader, leadership. How could a Jew who's married to a black woman be the true leader of the, Jewish, of the people of God if he's in an interracial, interracial marriage? But how countercultural God is. The most esteemed Jewish leader is in an interracial marriage. And for some reason, at the time when the people of Israel were objecting, they were forgetting that two tribes of Israel, at least seemed to be forgetting, that two tribes of Israel, Ephraim and Manasseh, were the result of of Joseph's interracial marriage with an Egyptian. The people of God always wanted to exclude others while God wanted to include the nations and races in his promises. Well, we focused a lot on the Old Testament. How about the New Testament and Jesus? Luke chapter 4 is the passage that is identified as the start of Jesus' public ministry. And you see Jesus' passion to reach the various cultures. So, Luke chapter 4. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, his hometown. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it was written. Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What was the people's reaction to this? Here's, Here's the Messiah. They loved it. He rolled up the scroll and they gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and all the eyes of and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Truly, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him. And they marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? Could it be the Messiah is from our own town? This passage from Isaiah is being fulfilled in our own midst? This is amazing. 
They loved it. They marveled at the gracious words coming from his mouth. But Jesus says to him, the picture of the Messiah, yes, I am the Messiah, but the Messiah that you think is coming is not the one who has come. Because you think that you are going to have a Messiah who is going to be focused on the exclu- exclu- focused exclusively on ethnic Israel. But that's not who the Messiah is. Because the kingdom of God is a multicultural kingdom. And the Messiah who is coming is to bring the good news of the gospel to people of every tongue, tribe, race, and nation. So after everyone was marveling at Jesus' words, here's what Jesus says next. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and many starved. And a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, outside of Israel, to a woman who was a widow. There were lots of hungry widows during the famine in Israel, but God didn't send Elijah to an Israelite. He sent him outside of Israel, that someone outside of Israel would receive the blessing. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, and all the synagogue were filled with wrath, And they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. They loved the idea of Jesus being Messiah until he was asserting that he was a Messiah for all peoples and all nations. Until he was asserting that there would be peoples of different races would be joined together into one family with equality of people of different languages and ethnicities. Not just there, but let's go to another famous passage, Mark chapter 11, in the cleansing of the temple. They came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold the pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. What is the issue in the cleansing of the temple? Well, we say, well, people are supposed to be praying and then extend their exchanging money. That's not the issue. The issue was that the way that the temple was set up was that there was the Holy of Holies, there was the holy places, there was the court of the priests, um, then there was the court for the Jews. And then after that, the outermost ring of the temple was called the court of the nations, or the court of the Gentiles. And with the money changers, who actually were providing a valuable service because people were traveling hundreds, if not thousands of miles to come give their sacrifice, it's a lot easier to do so without carrying your flocks with you. And so instead of what they did is they set up their sacrificial exchange system, not at the base of the hill, but in the very place where the nations were come to pray and worship. And the Jews kicked out anyone who was not ethnically Jewish from worshiping God. And that's why Jesus says to me, he overturns the tables, he says, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. This is where the nations are supposed to be worshiping. But you have made it a den of robbers. It's no longer a house of nation, you're extorting people. Countercultural. People of God have always hated it. Then we go to the Apostle Paul. Why was Paul thrown into prison? 
Most Christians would say, Paul was thrown into prison for preaching the gospel. If that's what you would say, you would be wrong. Because this is what Paul says. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Paul is specifically praying for courage and boldness, not to proclaim the gospel, but to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. What is the mystery of the gospel? Well, he's already told us in the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 3. This mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the, sa- of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The mystery of the gospel is that the Gentiles, which is every other race that's not Jewish, is that every other race that's not Jewish is included with the Jews in the household of God, equal partakers of the promises of God, joined together in the same body with no ethnic superiority. And that is why the Apostle Paul was in prison. The idea that Jesus saved them from hell was a great idea. The idea that their race was equal with other races was unacceptable. And they threw him in jail. And Paul asked for boldness to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Yes, he also in other places asked for boldness to proclaim the gospel itself. The biggest obstacle, see how countercultural this is? Nobody likes it when the gospel crosses barriers. That there is hostility to crossing barriers, including race. But God's purpose is for his multicultural kingdom to include people of every tongue, tribe, and race. And the, par- the, the, the pattern of the people of God and of every tribe across the globe is to exclude and to, and to have the benefits for themselves. So the character of the kingdom of God is not only, its multicultural nature is not only foundational and countercultural, is, it is intentional. The book of Acts is the story of God breaking down barriers and division. At Pentecost, the gospel breaks the linguistic barrier. It's not just for those who speak Hebrew. A couple of chapters later, the gospel breaks the racial barrier. And it breaks the political barrier as Cornelius, the centurion, becomes a believer. The gospel also breaks the tribal barrier in terms of the tribalism mentality. As the gospel comes to the Ethiopian eunuch. And we could say that for the eunuch, the gospel broke the other barrier, if you will. And then the rest of the book of Acts is the gospel breaking geographic barriers and spent spreading to the end of the globe. And the Apostle Paul reiterates the intentionality of bringing the gospel and God's purpose in bringing the gospel to all peoples. That reconciliation through Christ of all peoples, all races, all classes, which the Apostle Paul calls the disclosure of God's mysterious purposes. That that mysterious purpose has now been made known to us through God's revelation in Jesus Christ. The book of Ephesians and the book of Galatians were written because of racial conflict. And Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 this, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Who, are the, who is the us that is now one? It is Jews and Gentiles. It is the nations and the Jews being joined together as one household. 
And the dividing wall of hostility has been torn down because Jesus Christ took it for himself on the cross as he was died, crucified, and rose from the grave. And the mystery of the gospel is that these various groups are joined together in one family. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. There's no second-class citizens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. You have, a, you have a citizenship in the kingdom of God and members of the household of God. You have equal standing. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. And Paul then continues that this reconciliation that God is working will continue, will continue to advance until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ. What is the unity of the faith? They're in Ephesians chapter 4. What is the unity of the faith? We read this passage and say, well, I'm having a conflict with my spouse right now. My family doesn't get along. There's a conflict in my church. If we could all be unified, that's what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about anything less than that, but he's talking about far more than that. Because the unity of the faith is the unity of the nations joined together in one family where there is peace, where there is flourishing, joined together in the worship of God. And it will continue intentionally. Through the Holy Spirit working through the people of God, it will intentionally continue. God is determined to make it happen. And there is a day coming for the multicultural character of the kingdom of God is not a temporary thing, but it is an eternal thing. For there is a day coming when people from every tribe and language and people and nation will be joined together around the throne of God as one kingdom. Join together, giving God praise and worshiping him for all eternity. The multicultural character of the kingdom of God is eternal. And between this moment and that moment in Revelation chapter 5, what is going, we're, we are right here right now looking from the time that Christ first came seeing the expansion of God's commitment to the multicultural character and the multicultural expansion of the kingdom of God in a day coming when we will all be joined together. And the way that that is going to happen is through the Spirit of God, His Spirit working in His people intentionally, where they are not just haphazardly, or as a side byproduct, but intentionally crossing barriers, crossing cultural barriers, and social barriers, and racial barriers, and privilege barriers, and crossing barriers so that people of every tongue and tribe and race would be joined in the household of God. And for that to happen, yes, our identity has to be found in Christ so that we can flex to overcome our perceived barriers. As I said at the beginning, I am not interested in the stories that politicians would have us believe. I'm not interested, aside from learning what the issues are, I am not interested in the stories of cultural movements that are trying to interpret events and tell me how to interpret events. But I am very interested in the story of God and the story of what God is doing and very interested that the people of God replace the cultural narratives that they are using to understand and understand this world very interested in, in, you, in replacing the cultural narratives 
These stories, which seem to make sense of what's going on, they seem to offer some sort of hope, some sort of healing, some sort of redemption. And to replace those stories with the one thing that can satisfy. The one thing that can tear down the dividing wall of hostility. The one thing that can unite enemies and join them together, which is the story of God that is found in Jesus Christ which alone has the power to reconcile and which alone has the power to redeem. The word of God is overtly clear. And we have just examined a very small fraction of these passages. That the kingdom of God is a multicultural kingdom and we are moving towards multicultural worship for all eternity. And the pattern of God is to include the nations in his worship, and the pattern of man is to exclude anyone who is not like me. And so the choice for each one of us when we interact with other people before us is, do we choose cultural exclusiveness and follow the error of the people of God for generations and generations? Or do we choose cultural exclusiveness and and follow the tribalism, the arrogance of tribalism that is present in our country and present and warring around our globe? Or do we choose to follow gospel-driven inclusiveness that all people may find their hope, their healing, their forgiveness, and their dignity in Jesus Christ? It's incumbent upon us to remove the barriers to remove barriers to the gospel so that it may advance to every tongue, tribe, family, class, and nation at the ends of the earth and all the way here in Southern Maryland too. Let's pray. Father, I praise you that you are the God of the nations. I praise you, Lord, that you, your spirit is at work and your spirit is determined to overcome the failures of people, that your spirit is determined to overcome my failures, as I most enjoy people that are like me and like me. But Lord, thank you that your spirit has worked to cross the cultural barrier so that it could extend from Israel to someone like me, who's not a Jew. Lord, would your spirit work in us that we would understand your story? That when we hear stories in the news and in the media and we say that's not right or we reject those stories, will we not just simply reject them but will we replace them with the hope of Jesus? Will we listen to those stories and say, what are they longing for? And how can, Lord, would you use me to show that Jesus is the answer to the longings of their hearts? Father, we pray for our own community, that you would advance the gospel. Lord, we pray for our church, that you would use us to reach people that are different from us. And Lord, that through all these things, that you would be glorified, that your worship would be enriched and expanded, that our spiritual understanding would grow as we work with and partner with people who are very different than us, but who is united to us, who are united to us through your spirit.
at work in them and at work in us for the furtherance, not of my kingdom, but for the furtherance of your kingdom. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.